Thank you, John, for your welcome, and thank you for the invitation to come and share in this series. It's always good to see uh, a series about church history being put on. Uh, we live in a, in a generation that, in the church, isn't particularly conscious or interested in church history, I have to say. Uh, so it's good to find some exceptions that you... Uh, are concerned in what God has done in the past as well as what God is doing today. Now, you'll see from your yellow sheet, uh, ignore what's on the back for a moment, but you'll see on the front that I've chosen to talk tonight on the subject, William Carey, The Spirituality of Activism. That may not quite have been what you were expecting I would talk about. You might have imagined that I would talk primarily about Carey's missionary career uh, and his achievements, which were uh, numerous and extraordinary. And although I'll be referring to those from time to time, um, in a way you can read about his career and his achievements uh, in the biographies, which, as I've said at the bottom, are, are numerous. Uh, unfortunately, one that's only just come out... Um, we weren't able to get on the bookstall tonight, but this one that's just come out from IVP by Timothy George called Faithful Witness um, is in many ways quite a good biography of Carey in that it, it takes his theology, which I'll be talking about tonight, very seriously. It is rather much of Carey as seen from across the Atlantic by an American, and so it, it has one or two slight uh, Americanisms in it. But if you take those with a pinch of salt, it's, um, it's good stuff. So then, the spirituality of activism. Do you see that I've put as a first subheading a contradiction in terms? Question mark. The title is deliberately somewhat provocative. Is it a contradiction in terms? Because in certain Christian circles today, and one would have to include evangelical circles in that statement, in certain Christian circles today, activism has almost become a dirty word. Activism is associated with a great deal of hustle and bustle in the Christian life, a remorseless compulsion to be up and doing things, a lifestyle in the church which is perhaps all Martha and no Mary. Surely activism leaves no time or space for genuine reflection before God, for unhurried prayer, for that stillness in worship which we want to cultivate. Surely activism like that is rather a stony soil for the development of true spirituality. And so, in fact, those within evangelicalism who talk most about spirituality now tend very often to be those who are not so keen on activism. Now, certainly activism can be an attempt to cover up the poverty of inner spiritual life, to cover up a hollowness within with 
the externals of a preoccupied busyness about Christian things. And this is a disease to which all Christian professionals and especially evangelical professionals are particularly prone. Having worked in two theological colleges, I can tell you that it's a disease which threatens to become an epidemic in theological colleges. It's very easy to be so immersed and absorbed in the externals that there can be an inner hollowness, an inner emptiness in terms of spirituality. So to that extent, I want to agree with the critics of activism. But really tonight, I want to put the other side of the coin to put a case for the opposition. There must be a sense in which activism is central and integral to the dynamic of the Christian gospel. Gospel people surely ought to have something of the activist about them. Gospel people ought to be like Jesus himself about our father's business. The person who is probably our leading historian of British evangelicalism Dr. David Bebbington of the University of Stirling, who wrote a very important book a couple of years ago on evangelicalism in modern Britain. In that book, he identified four defining characteristics of the whole evangelical movement since the 1730s when it began. One of those four defining characteristics was activism. The others, if you're interested, were conversionism, a stress on the need for a personal life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. Crucicentrism, which is a long-winded way of saying focused on the cross. And Biblicism, an emphasis on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Activism, conversionism, Crucicentrism and Biblicism. And so according to Bevington, I think he's right in many ways, if we are not in some sense activists, we're not properly part of the evangelical movement. And it's one of the distinctions which Bevington draws actually between the old Puritan movement and the evangelical movement in that the evangelical movement emphasized the need for the men and women of God to be urgently up and doing the Lord's business. And it's from this angle that I want to talk about William Carey, because William Carey, if he was nothing else, was an activist. Just at this point, we'll put his picture up so that you've got a little bit of visual interest. Probably the most famous and well-known picture of Carey um, with his Indian Pandit or Munshi, who helped him in his translation work. So I'm going to give you an apologia for activism based on the life and writings of Carey. Now, actually, much of what I'm going to say about Carey could equally be said of his less well-known missionary colleagues um, of the time, particularly of two of his closest associates, men called Joshua Marshman and William Ward. Uh, those two with Carey made up a famous trio called the Serampore Trio. So they worked together 
at Serampore in Bengal, north of Calcutta. Marshman and Ward have been very largely forgotten. Carey is still remembered. Now, those of you who come from a Baptist background will know that this year Baptists have been going through a sort of great spasm of uh, commemoration of the 200 years of the Baptist Missionary Society, which Carey was involved in founding. And uh, I've been part of that spasm in various ways. But one of the dangers uh, about denominational anniversaries like that is that they get out of balance and one can focus on one particular individual who's been used of God to the neglect of others. And there's always a danger of a form of idolatry in which uh, a particular person is put on a pedestal. And Carey himself um, was always most anxious that that shouldn't be done. His deathbed, he said, don't speak of William Carey after I've gone. Speak of William Carey's God. So that's by way of introduction. And we'll take him off there. Now, moving on to the subject of obligation, bane or blessing. Carey grew up in a Christian context in which much of the church, whether Anglican or nonconformist, was indifferent to the claims of overseas mission, and indeed, to a large extent, indifferent to the claims of mission within this country as well. Carey grew up as an Anglican. If you go to a church, little church in Paulus Puri um, in Northamptonshire, um, where his father was parish clerk, um, you will see various mementos of his, his life, and uh, the Anglicans, of course, commemorate, commemorate one day this baptism. The Baptists commemorate another day, as he was baptized both as an infant and as a believer. Carrie grew up as an Anglican. The Church of England um, had, to a large extent, in the mid-18th century, succumbed to the twin temptations of what we might call reasonable religion, a great emphasis on rationality and social respectability. I only got to read um, the novels a little later of somebody like Jane Austen to realise something of the, the social ambience of the Church of England around um, that time and later. Religious enthusiasm was certainly not approved of. Any hint of religious enthusiasm was suspected as a sign of incipient Methodism or incipient madness, and it was really hard to distinguish the two. But much of nonconformity was actually no better. The age of reason, which had so sapped the vitality of a lot of Anglicanism, had also affected nonconformity. Many dissenters had succumbed to their own brands of rationalism. Some had become Unitarians. They couldn't cope with the apparent irrationality of the Trinity. Others had been propelled by that same rationalism towards an extreme form of Calvinism, a very high hyper-Calvinism which left everything to God and left nothing to his people to do. It cut the nerve of human moral responsibility. 
Carey eventually, of course, became a Baptist. And the strand of Baptist tradition which he belonged to uh, was known as the particular Baptists, not because they were particularly pernickety or peculiar, simply that they were Calvinistic, believing in particular redemption. And many particular Baptists had fallen for this particular um, era of hyper-Calvinism. Many, although not all of them. And amongst the Baptist churches of Northamptonshire and Leicestershire, the circle in which Carey um, grew up, hyper-Calvinism was a strong theological influence. Now, according to this hyper-Calvinist tradition, the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, the divine commission to go and make disciples of all nations, that divine commission could not conceivably apply to us, to the church in our day, the 18th century. After all, to whom had Jesus given the Great Commission? Jesus had given the Great Commission to the apostles at the birth of the church at a time when they had an extraordinary task to perform, the task of bringing the gospel to the pagan world um, of the first century. And And to equip them for that extraordinary task, God gave them an extraordinary gift, the Pentecostal gift of tongues and other supernatural gifts as well. This understanding of the Great Commission, uh, although perhaps particularly pronounced in these hyper-Calvinist circles, was in fact shared by most mainstream Protestant thinking from the late 16th century onwards. Some debate as to how far the reformers themselves shared it. According to this understanding, in the apostolic age, God had equipped his church for the extraordinary demands of taking the gospel to the pagan world by bestowing on the church extraordinary gifts. Tongues, the ability to speak in foreign tongues so that the heathen could understand, and supernatural healing. It was reasonable to suppose, therefore, was it not, that if God wished the contemporary church to renew the extraordinary apostolic endeavor of attempting to preach the gospel to the barbarous heathen beyond the boundaries of Christendom, if that was God's intention, he would clearly signal that intention by a new outpouring of these extraordinary apostolic gifts. Now that is the background um, for Carey's question, which I put down on the sheet. September 1785, Carey was still a young man, 24 years old, newly settled in his first pastorate in what is still the sleepy Northamptonshire village of Moulton. <coughs> wasn't even ordained fully. He was really not much more than what we would call a student pastor. He went to what was really a minister's fraternal meeting. It was the practice in those fraternal meetings for there to be discussion on a topic proposed, usually by the youngest person there, and on this occasion that was Carey. And Carey has the temerity to propose that this assembled gathering of ministers should discuss this question, 
whether the command given to the apostles to teach all nations was not obligatory on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world, seeing that the accompanying promise, lo, I am with you always, was of equal extent. If the promise of Jesus was that I am with you always to the ends of the earth in every generation, surely the command was also for all the world in every generation. Now, there's a good deal of uncertainty about this particular episode in Carey's life. We're not exactly sure whether it was September 1785. There's some uncertainty about the identity of the chairman on that occasion. And there's uncertainty about the words which he used in replying to Carey. The most commonly cited version you'll find in most of the biographies is, sit down, young man, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine, or some such words as that. Um, And you'll still find that reproduced in here. I'm afraid, like most well-known sayings in church history, it may not be authentic. Um, That particular version uh, first appears in an American biography published in 1853. The earliest versions of that meeting um, give us the reply on the sheet. Certainly nothing can be done before another Pentecost, another Pentecost again, when an effusion of miraculous gifts, including the gift of tongues, would give effect to the commission of Christ as at first. He, that is Carey, was a most miserable enthusiast, put down word again, for asking such a question. Notice that Carey had focused the issue on obligation. Whether the command given to the apostles to teach all nations was not obligatory on all succeeding ministers and by ministers... Um, He really meant all Christians, ultimately. Against Christians of his own day, who denied any responsibility to bring the gospel to the world, Carey sought to draw attention to a continuing universal obligation imposed on all Christians by the command of Christ. This theme of obligation was central in the pamphlet, a famous pamphlet which Carey wrote between 1788 and 1792, and it was actually published. I'll put the title page up on the screen. They were fond of short, snappy titles in the 18th century. <laughs> Inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicability of further undertakings are considered. To be short, Carey's Inquiry. It's generally remembered as today. Uh, And although it's well remembered today, one has to say at the time it was not a bestseller. Um, Carey's friend Andrew Fuller had great difficulty getting rid of a copy, so it probably wasn't that important outside a very small circle but sometimes books can be influential within a particular small circle and still um, have an impact in that way. In many ways, that title sums up the age in which Carey was living and writing, the age of the Enlightenment, 
It was an emphasis on rational, dispassionate inquiry into the grounds of moral obligation. This was the sort of language of the Enlightenment. And if you read that pamphlet, uh, in many ways it is a very almost cold-blooded, calculated, rational document. It was designed to convince, to persuade, to answer objections. That was the level at which it was written. But it's all about obligation and to the obligations of Christians to use means. Obligation demanded action. This pamphlet was a call to all Christians, but especially to the Baptist denomination, to get off their backsides and actually do something to bring the knowledge of Christ to the world beyond the boundaries of so-called Christian Europe. It was not enough, says Carey in that pamphlet, for Christians to pray for the spread of God's kingdom, as in fact a number of them had been doing in regular prayer meetings, some of them interdenominational for some years. Prayer is good, says Carey. God is already answering those prayers, but you must add to those prayers action. It was a call for Christians to use every lawful method to spread the knowledge of his name. You see, other people shared Carey's basic theology, an evangelical Calvinist theology. But it's Carey above all who keeps insisting in these years, about 1791, 1792, on the necessity for action. In shortly after the publication of that pamphlet, there was a meeting of the local association of Baptist ministers um, in Nottingham on the 30th, 30th to the 31st of May, 1792. On Wednesday, the 30th of May, Carey preached a sermon on the passage which we read earlier from Isaiah 54. I'll say a bit more about that sermon in, in a few moments. Just to say now that in that sermon on Isaiah 54, Carey urged his fellow Baptists to heed the call of a prophet to lengthen their cords and strengthen their stakes. In other words, to expand the tent. Because God was about to do a great work in greatly expanding the scope of his people. Therefore, his people better prepare for God's expansionist activity. Now, we know that that sermon made a great impact on his hearers. And Carey's friends testify to that, that uh, all were deeply affected and convinced by the sermon, by this appeal to action in the cause of Christian mission. But it's remarkable how quickly powerful sermons um, lose of our impact. Following morning, in the business meeting of the association, Carey was waiting for some action to be taken in response to his declaration of God's word the day before. But nobody was willing to make any proposition that anything should be done to take action. Carey then seized the hand of his closest friend, Andrew Fuller, minister of the Baptist Church at Kettering, 
and urged him, inquired of him, are we again going to go away without doing something? It will be a tragedy if we go out of this meeting without doing something. And as a result, a resolution was passed in that meeting to the effect that a plan should be drawn up for forming a Baptist society for propagating the gospel to the heathen. And that resolution was brought to pass a few months later in the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society on the 2nd of October, 1792. Without Carey's repeated insistence on the imperative for action, the Evangelical Missionary Societies would not have been formed. Now, to emphasize moral obligation in response to the command of Christ as a central ingredient in missionary motivation is actually not very popular today, even in evangelical circles. When we instruct the students in our theological colleges on the subject of mission and evangelism, we tell them rightly that the last thing they ought to do is to make their people feel guilty about their failure to be active in mission and evangelism. Yes, guilt-induced efforts at personal evangelism are almost invariably counterproductive. Mission which is all law and no grace, if you like, mission which doesn't arise out of a personal experience of a living Christ, will neither draw others to Christ nor glorify Christ. To that extent, any call to mission which is purely based on obligation can be cold and legalistic and counterproductive. But I wonder whether we're in danger of going to the other extreme. Are we in danger of running so far and so fast from guilt-induced evangelism that the essential compulsion of the gospel is minimized or even eliminated? Yes, missionary motivation that is all obligation will simply produce barren legalism and frustration. But if we remove all trace of compelling obligation from our understanding of the gospel, I believe we're left with a complacent and indulgent spirituality. Because mission then simply becomes an invitation to others to share the good spiritual experience which I myself have enjoyed. Mission becomes man-centred rather than God-centred. I think these questions are pertinent today when much of the church has lost the sense of the necessity of mission in terms of the salvation of the world. Even evangelicals have lost much of their cutting edge in thinking about global mission. Those who are involved in the two-thirds world church today will tell you that it's far easier to get funding for an irrigation project, an agricultural project, than it is to get funding for programs of pastoral training. Have we lost the cutting edge of the necessity of mission? I'm going to move on to the third theme, and one I'll spend a little bit more on through to the end. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In Carey's thinking and in his writing, emphasis on human obligation is never one-sided. 
It's always held in the closest possible relationship to an equivalent emphasis on mission as the plan, the purpose, the activity of God himself. God himself as a missionary God. And ultimately we will get this subject of the role of obligation in mission in its right perspective only if we have a properly biblical balance between God's sovereign purpose and our human responsibility. Now, Carey is remembered today, perhaps more than anything else, for the slogan which he used when preaching on that passage from Isaiah 54 to that uh, minister's meeting in Nottingham on the 30th of May, 1792. It's a much misquoted slogan. If you go to Calcutta today, to the church which Carey founded in Calcutta, there's a flourishing Bible college next to it called Carey Bible College. As you go through the main entrance of that college over the door, you can read this slogan, Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Now what's wrong with that? Let's see if we got any... Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. What's wrong with it? It's the wrong way round, isn't it? The expect great things came first. The attempt great things came second. And actually, for Carey's theology, it was crucial that it was that way round. It's a classic case of our man-centered activism distorting a properly biblical emphasis. Actually, latest research shows that what Carey probably shared, what said was, expect great things, attempt great things. The for God and the from, uh, the from God and the for God were added later. But that doesn't matter so much. It was clearly what he meant. What does matter is the order. The expectation of great things from God is logically and theologically prior to the attempting of great things for him. In that passage in Isaiah, there's a picture of exiled Judah, apparently forgotten by God, her husband. And Carey saw in that picture, in, in that passage, a picture of the barren and desolate church of his day. But in the promise of a new and wider destiny for God's exiled people, Carey saw the promise of countless new children in the Christian family to be drawn from all the earth. God was about to do something extraordinary to expand the horizons of his people in an unprecedented way. Therefore, his church had to lengthen its guy ropes, strengthen its tent pegs. God's promise was his command. What God was promising he would do was a command to his church to act. So God was about to do great things by extending the kingdom of Jesus throughout the globe. For that very reason, Christians were bound to attempt great things by spreading the gospel overseas. So to attempt great things for God is not to engage in man-centered heroics. It's simply to respond to God's compelling invitation to cooperate with him in the grandeur of his saving purposes, what he is about to do. God's purpose, 
then, is the basis of confident action. I want to say a bit about that. God's purpose is the basis of confident action. What Carey attempted was very widely regarded as little short of lunacy. He was very largely self-educated. In terms of formal education, he would have had only what we would call primary education. For a largely self-educated dissenting pastor-cum-shoemaker to travel halfway around the world to force his way illegally into British India, which he did, and to seek to convert those who were regarded as the poor benighted Hindus to Christianity seemed preposterous in the extreme. It attracted a great deal of ridicule from respectable society, including many within the churches. See, the 18th century had taken, by and large, the view that Christianity and civilization went hand in hand. And it was foolish to expect somebody who was non-civilized, the poor barbarian, to respond to the superior creed of Christianity. First, you had to do some civilizing, and then maybe it was appropriate to expect the non-Westerner to respond. The evangelical missionary movement turns that on its head, what it says is rather, no, Christianity is actually God's medicine for regeneration. And within the gospel itself are all the seeds of whatever social advancement is necessary. Now, that may have had dangers. It did have dangers because it led at times to an equation between uh, Western civilization and the Christian message. But... Here was the contrast between saying no gospel until they're civilized and Carey and the evangelicals who followed him who said no, the gospel is itself God's engine of civilization. Now Carey's response to such criticisms was to appeal not merely to the clarity of God's command but even more to the certainty of God's purpose. If this is what God is about to do we can cooperate with him in confidence. Now, for all Carey's attack on the hyper-Calvinists, he remained, like his theological mentor, his friend Andrew Fuller, he remained thoroughly Calvinistic in his theological framework. Today, we would find him quite an embarrassingly high Calvinist. In common with almost all pioneers of the Protestant missionary awakening, Carey placed his confidence in what he held to be the promises of Scripture that through the preaching of the gospel, the heathen would be brought to make their glad submission to the Lordship of Christ. Psalm 2, the Messianic Psalm, was a great favorite of the missionary movement in the 19th century. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. This is what theologians call a post-millennial eschatology. Through the work of the church, the world would respond to Christ in such a way and on such a scale that the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Now, I've got questions about that eschatology. Does it not lose sight of the contrast between this age in which the submission of the world to the Lordship of Christ will always be incomplete 
and the age to come in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Doesn't it lose sight of the second coming of Christ as the focus of a Christian hope? In practice, it did lose sight of that. But at least it expresses one half of the witness of Scripture, namely that God's saving purpose cannot be defeated and that his gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. God's purpose is the basis of mission, the basis of confident action. Secondly, God's promises are the basis of persistent endurance. Carey almost certainly underestimated the magnitude of the task which awaited him when he arrived in Bengal in 1793. He was staggered on arrival in India by the nature of Hinduism, the way in which Hinduism affected the whole of society, especially the caste system. The caste system which not merely divided men and women from each other, but acted in such a way that any religious dissent was almost impossible. This was perhaps the greatest problem of Christian mission in 19th century India. To become in any way associated with the Christian church meant that literally you became an outcast from society. And to become an outcast from society meant that you lost your status, your access to all economic facilities. You became shunned from society. That meant that so many of the early converts to Christianity in 19th century India ended up in a position of social and economic dependence on Christian missionaries. That's ultimately the real reason why so much of the church in India has had a tremendous problem of dependency uh, on the West, which is still with us today. It was very hard. It was seven years before Carey saw his first Hindu convert, Krishna Pal. Even after that, conversions were few and far between. Some of those who were converted fell away. In such circumstances, it was easy to lose heart. 1794, Carey writes, When I first left England, my hope of the conversion of the heathen was very strong. But among so many obstacles, it would utterly die away, unless upheld by God, having nothing to cherish it. And where did Carey find his encouragement? He found his resources for endurance and encouragement in the promises of God in Scripture. He goes on, yet this is our encouragement. The power of God is sufficient to accomplish everything which he has promised. And his promises are exceedingly great and precious respecting the conversion of the heathens. That was the nature of his confidence. Or again, a letter in June 1796, writing back to Andrew Fuller, become the secretary of the Missionary Society back in England, talks about his missionary colleague, John Thomas. Mr. Thomas and I are men infallible, but we can only desert the work of preaching the word of life to the Hindus with our lives and are through grace determined to hold on, though our discouragements were a thousand times greater than they are. We have the same ground of hope with our brethren in England, those in the ministry in England, the same ground of hope. What is it? There's the promise, power, and faithfulness of God. 
For unless his mercy break the heart of stone, either in England, India, or Africa, nothing will be done effectively. effectually. And he, that is God, can as easily convert a superstitious Brahmin as an Englishman. Now, again, we may wish to put some question marks against some aspect, aspects of those beliefs. Point of fact, it has proved more difficult to convert a superstitious Brahmin than your average Englishman. And that raises a major issue of mission theodicy, if you like, which we won't go into now. But the point I want to emphasize is that activism in the best and biblical sense, is focused on the word and purpose of God, not on the uncertainties of a human response which our work for God evokes. And if our activism focuses on the level of response without reference to what we can discern of the purposes of God, it's liable to degenerate into frenetic and manipulative activity in mission. And I think there's a danger that some aspects of church growth theory today run close um, to doing that. Thirdly, God's providence turns disasters into mercies. Central to Carey's work in Bengal was his work as a translator of the scriptures. With uh, Indian assistants like the one on the picture and with his colleagues, um, he was responsible for an extraordinary translation achievement into a large number of Indian languages. I'll give you the numbers in a moment. On the 11th of March, 1812, disaster struck. The printing workshop at Serampore, where he kept all his printing fonts and all his paper, all the work in progress on his biblical translations. That printing workshop was destroyed by fire. Many of his manuscripts, most of his fonts and paper, to the value of 70,000 rupees, literally went up in flames. In human terms, it was a dreadful disaster. Carey estimated it would take 12 months' hard labor to replace what had been lost in the fire. Yet in reporting that fire to Andrew Fuller back in England, Carey describes the fire as a providence. And he rapidly passes from detailing the losses incurred to a list of the merciful circumstances, eight merciful circumstances surrounding that episode for which he, he wished to give thanks. In fact, in the letter, he starts off by telling Fuller of some of the bereavements suffered by the missionary community, which were very grievous. Then he goes on to talk about the fire. He says it will take 12 months' hard labor to replace what has been consumed. And then he lists these eight merciful circumstances. The first is that no lives were lost, though Ward was in very great danger of being suffocated with the smoke. The last of the eight was, we have all of us been supported under the affliction and preserved from discouragement. To me, the consideration of the divine sovereignty and wisdom has been very supporting. And indeed, I have usually been supported under afflictions by feeling that I and mine are in the hands of an infinitely wise God. 
I endeavoured to improve this our affliction last Lord's Day in preaching about it from Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I principally dwelt upon two ideas, viz. One, God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. Two, we ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us or to us. To enable us to do which, I recommended realizing meditations upon the perfections of God, upon his providence and upon his promises, including the prophecies of the extension of his kingdom. There it is again. Now, Carey was deeply affected by that fire. Don't mistake the evangelical language. He was deeply cast down by it. But nonetheless, he is able to regard that fire as another reminder, a paradoxical reminder, yes, a humbling reminder of the infinitely wise and inscrutable providence of God. And therefore a reminder of the ultimate certainty of the purpose of God. And actually, historically speaking, it was the news of that fire which did much to make Carey a well-known figure in Britain, which substantially increased levels of public interest and support. Again, you may want to address questions to this quaintly Puritan theology of providence. But we need to ask what our generation, our Christian generation, has lost by its general repudiation of an active belief in providence. Point of fact, what we've done in this individualistic age is simply to individualize it. We're happy to talk about what the Lord has done in my life. He has led me to make this decision, to make that decision, but we no longer speak in general terms in the way that our forebears did about providence. There is something very impressive about the capacity of faith of this kind to transform disasters into mercies. And true Christian activism, I want to suggest to you, is sustained by an inner serenity, something which can take quite appalling reverses in its stride and yet press on with a divinely appointed task. And for Carey, that was possible because he'd been captivated by the demands of the gospel of grace. And there's the concept of obligation again. Fourthly and briefly, and we're getting towards the end, God's service demands total dedication. The later sections of the inquiry, that pamphlet, Carey deals with a number of practical objections to the missionary task, including the objection that missionaries in tropical lands would not be able to procure the necessities of life. Missionaries surely would not be able to live at the standard to which they had been accustomed. That was the protest that was being made. How on earth are you going to survive on the sort of food that the heathen eat? Carey's replies to acknowledge, well, maybe European food might not be obtainable, but surely, he says, to make the adjustment to a native diet is no more than to apply further that basic commitment to God's service which anyone makes on entering Christian ministry. And in response to that question, he continues with the extract which I put on the reverse of your sheet. We won't look at it in detail now, but uh, you might like to read it when you get home, uh, provided you can cope with the old-fashioned way of um, printing the S's. 
Just look at the first couple of sentences. A Christian minister is a person who in a peculiar sense is not his own. He is the servant of God and therefore ought to be wholly devoted to him. By entering on that sacred office, he solemnly undertakes to be always engaged as much as possible in the Lord's work, not to choose his own pleasure or employment. The Christian minister, and he's using that word in a broad sense, is committed to being an activist. He solemnly undertakes to be always engaged as much as possible in the Lord's work. Again, I want to ask, has contemporary evangelical spirituality lost this sense of the compulsive demands of the gospel of grace? Fifthly, and finally, God's grace puts all our achievements into perspective. Carey's achievements were extraordinary. In translation, which I was talking about earlier, he was primarily responsible for the translation of the entire Bible into six Asian languages and of parts of it into a further 29. Most of us would be satisfied with one. And that is a self-educated man. To this should be added his major contributions to Indian education from primary level right up to what was in terms of a day university level. His contributions to Bengali literature and culture. He's remembered by Hindus as a major influence in a cultural renaissance in 19th century India. Social reform. Through his agitation and that of other missionaries, the practice of sooty, widow burning, which was supposed to be voluntary, but in practice wasn't. He's responsible for persuading the British to ban that. And, perhaps more tangentially, but also extremely interesting, he was involved uh, to a very high degree of expertise in Indian horticulture and agriculture. Yet Carey always retained an exceptionally low evaluation of his own spiritual productivity. Listen to one or two things he says. 1817, reflecting on the recent deaths of some of his colleagues, wondering why God has sought fit to preserve him, he says, The night of death will soon come when none of us can work. I look with deep regret on my past life. I am ashamed to see what a loiterer I have been. What a loiterer. I scarcely appear to live to any useful purpose. And then as an old man on his 70th birthday in 1831, Carey writes to his son Jabez, reviewing the story of his life, and concludes, quote, that he finds much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. Negligence. Well, Carey is, is buried in a cemetery in Serampore, which is now sadly neglected, or at least it was in 1988 when I was there. It was largely underwater and cattle were grazing in it. But in that cemetery, his grave at least is relatively well preserved. On the side of the monument which marks his tomb and that of um, his three wives, not all at once. Um, <laughs> uh, on that uh, 
that tomb, there is an inscription which Carey instructed should be placed um, on his wife's tomb in his own memory. It contains a couplet of Isaac Watts, which itself draws on biblical language from Psalm 22 and Job. The couplet is this, a wretched, poor and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. That was how he wanted to be remembered. A wretched, poor and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. Now to our minds, all this sounds faintly comic, over the top, if not positively unhealthy. In our Christian age, we're accustomed to the need to give self-despising Christians a proper sense of their own self-worth. And in pastoral ministry, encouraging anyone to think of themselves as a wretched, poor and helpless worm is not high on the list of our pastoral priorities. Yet, I think we've got to be fair to Carey here. He was no evangelical Uriah Heap, ever so humble, um, in a false and affected way. He was not a doormat, a sort of Christian wimp who delighted in being walked over by others. If you read his letters written in the 1820s, a very unhappy time in Carey's life when he and his fellow missionaries at Serampore fell out with the missionary society at home and fought them tooth and nail for what they felt to be their rights, you get a very different picture of the man. That ultimately led, sadly, to a separation of Carey's mission from the Baptist Missionary Society. And the argument was very much about what the relationship should be between missionaries and the home committee that sends them out. Carey insisting that the relationship should be one of Christian brotherhood, not a servant-master relationship with the Missionary Society Committee as the bosses. Well, he lost the argument, but the issue which he raised is still very much a key missiological issue. So he's not a wimp. He appears to belittle himself only because he's so captivated by the immensity of God's grace in using him to play some part in his eternal purposes. You see, the activists in Christian work can all too easily become someone who feeds their own insecure ego. Somebody who's convinced that the future of the church rests on their shoulders and theirs alone. That's the wrong sort of activism. But the true Christian activist retains a clear focus on the grace of God, that grace of God which throws all human achievements into miniature. Carey's epitaph on that too expresses his own deep sense of unworthiness of how God had used him, but also his own equally firm conviction of his security in God. He knew that at the last, with his work done, he could throw himself with absolute confidence onto the love of God in Christ. On thy kind arms I fall. There was a confidence. Yes, the humility to us may sound exaggerated, but also there was an assurance there. On thy kind arms I fall. Well, there's a lot more I could say about Carey, but we won't tonight. Ultimately, he is significant 
not because he's the only father of a modern missionary movement, there were many others, but he's significant as a catalyst for the missionary awakening, and therefore as one of the sources of what must be one of the most profound and significant movements in the whole of Christian history. In the lifetime of some of us in this room, the church in the two-thirds world has grown to such an extent that the center of gravity of Christianity is no longer where it was when Carey was alive. It's no longer where it was when some of us were born. And that is what God has done. And Carey expected it. He expected great things from God, and God has done it. And so I think we ought to thank God for William Carey. Thank you. indeed, Brian, for, for your talk. Now, the, there are well, five, ten minutes or so left for questions and comments, and, and Brian said he's, he's willing to share those with us. So, Does anyone like to put a first question or, or make a comment on something which has been said or perhaps unsaid? Yes. You said at the time the church believed that there should be no gospel until there was civilization. Mm. Did Kerry himself accept that uh, point of view? No, 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 quite the reverse. Um, um, He he is protesting against that view which um, really created division between Christendom and the rest of the world. They say, no, the task of the Christian is essentially the same throughout the, the whole world. It is one world in which there is one commission. That one commission was to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That gospel of Christ has the potential to raise individuals, and it has the potential to raise the whole standard of society. Now, as the 19th century goes on, um, there tends to be a greater emphasis on um, the gospel being able to make people into Westerners, into a sort of Western image. That's where the missionary movement begins to confuse um, the gospel with the trappings of Western culture in a way that has been fundamentally unhelpful. But uh, it goes back to uh, the confidence in the regenerative power of the gospel, which is something that clearly we want to endorse. I was just wondering if modern missions don't seem to put the priorities of civilization before um, the gospel. Am I wrong in making that? Um, well, I would have thought, I mean, modern missions are, well, certainly British missions are extremely culturally sensitive now, and much more uh, aware of the ambiguities and the distinction between you know, what is eternal and unchanging in the Christian message and what is purely relative to our particular culture. To that extent, we're much more wary for talking about civilization. Um, maybe you're, you're meaning more in terms of social regeneration. I mean, I think that the, the pendulum has swung, even within the evangelical world, that 
from a position in which human need was, in the early part of this century, human physical need was, was treated with less than the seriousness that it deserves. We've now swung to the other extreme because we find it hard to see the eternal issues as starkly and as strongly as they did in the last century. They're much readier to respond to human and physical need than to spiritual need. Give them up, yes. Yes, I don't know whether you feel able to comment on this or not, but I wonder to what it, could you comment on the condition of Protestant Christianity mm-hmm. in India today? Yes. And to what extent, if any, you can still detect uh, Carey's legacy in that? Right. Um, in most of the area where he worked in Bengal, um, Protestant Christianity is weak, divided. Um, and lacking vision, I think one has to say that. Uh, it's not entirely its fault. It's one of the hardest places um, in the world for Christian mission to operate. Um, in India, the churches are much stronger in the south than they are in the north, um, maybe because Christianity was in the south for centuries, even before Carey arrived. Um, and I think there are other, other reasons as well. And um, Anglican Christianity is quite strong in the South, now part of the Church of South India. The only parts of India in the North where Christianity is strong are the tribal areas, where um, Christianity got there before Hinduism did, or sometimes in competition with Hinduism. Um, so if you go to the far northeastern states of India, the bits that go around the top um, between Bangladesh, um, Burma, and Thailand. They are some of the most Christian parts of Asia. Uh, In a state like Mizoram or Nagaland, um, evangelized by Mizoram, by Calvinistic Methodists in the north, British Baptists in the south, Nagaland by American Baptists. You've got some of the highest levels of church going anywhere in the world. Um, so there is, it isn't all gloom, um, but many of the same problems which confronted missionaries in Carey's day in the heartland of India are still there. And essentially it is still the problem that to confess Christ and become a Christian seems to be tantamount to renouncing your Indianness. You're cutting yourself off. Can I ask a supplementary? Mm. To what extent did Carey note any distinction um, in the profile of people who were converted, did he, for example, see that um, people who were Harijans, untouchables, mm-hmm. were more likely to convert and say, um, or did he not comment on that? Well, actually, in his lifetime, a surprising proportion of the converts were actually Brahmins or um, from uh, higher social sectors. Um, He is an enlightenment person who has a tremendous confidence in the power of education, that education can, Christian education, can ultimately regenerate society. Um, He still believes absolutely in conversion, but he, he and others, and especially those after him, put more and more emphasis on trying to convert India from the top down. You go for the elite, you go for the intellectuals. So he founded... Um, with the others, Serampore College is a sort of 
partly to train Indian evangelists to win India, believe that only Indians ultimately would win India for Christ, but also to try and penetrate the Bengali intelligentsia with sort of Christian enlightenment. Um, And that was the policy of most Indian missions throughout the 19th century, and it never really worked, one has to say. And it's in the later 19th century you get the first what are called people movements with the untouchables uh, and tribal groups beginning to turn to Christ in, in large numbers. And you then get a turning away from this higher educational policy. You've spoken at some length about um, mm. how Kerry tried to redress the balance mm. um, after the extreme Calvinists. Mm. Um, we think about our Lord's words and all power is given unto me, mm. go ye into all men. Right. Yeah. Um, we then made a, a comment about um, sort of frenetic activity of yeah. church growth. Yes. Do you think you could elaborate? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I don't want to you know, condemn church growth out of hand. I think it has much to teach us. Um, I think only to say that you know, if church growth principles had been applied strictly and logically to Carey's own mission. He would have um, given up and gone elsewhere um, at a fairly early point. And I think historically one has to say there are certain people in Christian mission um, who need to be sowers in order that others may be reapers. Uh, Another example is David Livingstone who achieved virtually nothing in terms of conversion, but who had this God-given belief that he was called to open up Central Africa for the gospel in a way that his missionary society found very difficult to cope with. Um, But historically, um, it is after the death of Livingston, as a result of his explorations, that you get a missionary advance into Central Africa, which is the roots of the 20th century massive church growth in sub-Saharan Africa. So historically, you can say maybe Livingston was right. Um, I think there are times when one has to take a long-term view in Christian mission. Um, There are other times when it is right to say maybe God is calling us to move to an area of greater responsiveness. Yes. Forget about it. Well, that's right. I mean, that's you know the, the classic example. Um, surely, if there is one world and one commission for all the world, uh, one cannot simply write off the hardest areas um, <coughs> in in mission strategy in this country. Is one to write off some of the hardest inner city areas? because of lack of response and spent all of our time evangelising the Bible Belt and suburbia. Surely not. Uh, Two parts to my question. Firstly, have I understood you correctly that the very high Calvinistic Mm. theology was actually a blockage to most people in that day from going overseas with the gospel? It was certainly one of the factors. It wasn't the only one. Mm. Secondly, if that is the case, the chairman describes... Mm. Carey is a miserable enthusiast. Yes. Well, what about those who were known as enthusiasts, yes. Methodists, with a more yeah. Arminian theology? Right. Were they still reluctant to go overseas? If so, why? Mm. And was Carey a spur 
to that stream as well? Yes, thank you. That's an important question. Um, the Methodists, in a sense, were there first, um, in that there are Methodist missionaries in the West Indies in 1786. Um, so there was always friendly rivalry between Methodists and Baptists as to who was first in the Protestant missionary movement. The Methodists were actually first to send slaves overseas, to send missionaries overseas to work amongst the slaves. To work amongst the slaves in Antigua. But there was no formal mission organisation. Um, nonetheless, there was no necessary connection between Wesley's Arminian theology um, and a, an automatic that did not produce an automatic commitment to bring the gospel to those outside Christendom. And Wesley's remembered for the phrase, the world is my parish. He actually used that to justify itinerant preaching in England, breaking uh, Anglican parochial discipline. Um, that was the real context of that phrase. I can preach wherever I like, thank you very much. Um, he, he does take an interest in the work in the West Indies, although it's primarily his friend, the man called Thomas Cook, who, um, who does that not until much later that the Methodists um, get involved. Ultimately, the distinction between Armenian evangelical and moderate Calvinist evangelical becomes fairly unimportant. And as, um, as evangelicalism strengthens, you get people like Simeon, who you heard about earlier, who are really saying, I want to lay aside party labels. I want... I want Evangelical Arminians and Evangelical Calvinists to cooperate together. And increasingly that becomes the mood. Yes. Yes, in the chairman's report, where he said certainly nothing can be done before another Pentecost, yes. did he actually believe that there could be another Pentecost with miraculous gifts and tongues? Or was mm -hmm. he saying that, was he mm -hmm. in a sense saying nothing can be done? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Did they have a latter-day rain theology in that period? Well, in theory they did. Whether they actually believed it would happen is another matter. Um, yeah, I mean, you can say it was a sort of theoretical confidence, but it was a remote possibility. Um, you know, theologically, surely one, the response would be to say, well, let's go out and do it and see if the signs are following, rather than wait for the signs before we go out and do it. Um, and that was certainly their, their view. Um, but it's interesting, the early Pentecostal movement, the beginning of this century, the understanding of tongues at the beginning of the early Pentecostal movement is precisely this understanding, that it is a gift given um, to enable missionaries to go overseas without having to learn the languages so they can repeat um, Pentecostal endeavours. And a number of the early Pentecostal missionaries do go out and then are disappointed when they find... Um, they can't speak other languages uh, simply through the power of the Spirit. Mm. Yes. Peter. 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 Just ask you, uh, when a Hindu was converted, how much culture could he bring with him? Oh. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> um, if Carey was... Yes. Well, I mean, Carey in some ways is more, we might say, enlightened, progressive, and later missionaries. Um, he doesn't dismiss all of Hindu culture out of hand. Um, not just does he translate the Bible here, he translates some of the Hindu epics. Um, now, he's not uh, over enthralled with their religious virtues, but he does actually 
recognise their literary and cultural virtues. He says he's quite prepared to um, put the Hindu sacred epics on a par with Homer's Iliad or something like that. He can see cultural values in them, but ultimately they cannot say, they cannot be the author, therefore um, they are a relative value. But he's quite happy for Hindu converts to retain their Hindu names, which often um, would have names like Krishna in them. Uh, so they, they have certain, what others would see as idolatrous associations. He's not wanting people to turn their backs completely. But the Baptist missionaries always said, once you're converted, you must turn your back on caste. You cannot be in the church and maintain caste distinctions. If you're in Christ, you are one body. And they, they held to that very strongly. Well, I'm sure that was right, but it was also part of the root of the problem. Well, my, my question has to do with the question mm. about Pentecost, because yeah. um, I don't want to cause offence to anyone, but mm. I, I, it's always bothered me that we keep praying for Pentecost when it can never happen as such, because Pentecost belonged to a particular historical situation. Mm. What is more, that it occurred to me that in a sense, the results of Pentecost in the media were very powerful, very significant, but in contrast to what has subsequently been achieved, very limited. In after Pentecost, after the establishment of Christianity in Asia Minor, um, Christianity moved westwards, and it's in modern times that, having received Christianity westwards, all the benefit perhaps the state guard, because without that we'd be much worse off than we are, God help us. It's in more modern times that we have managed to move Christianity from the West towards the East. And as you have indicated, that mm. the, thus the centre of Christianity mm. has moved away from us mm. and away from Europe. Mm. Surely the very fact that this has been accomplished we ought not to have an inferiority complex about ourselves or about our achievements, and actually, yeah. that achievement in itself is evidence of the of the coming of the Holy Spirit as a continuing thing, not a specialist thing, but a day by day, hour by hour thing. Or yes, I mean, I, I agree with you that you know we ought not to belittle what has happened in in recent times, in this century particularly. Uh, it is this century which has seen the greatest expansion of Christianity in all Christian history. But <laughs> I wouldn't want to belittle either um, the enormity of what happens um, in New Testament times and the enormity above all is the breaking of the barrier between Jew and Gentile. It is when Christianity crosses the boundary from being a, a sort of subset of Judaism um, into, uh, into a faith of the world. Um, that produces enormous tensions, as we find in the New Testament. You know, that's what Romans and Galatians are all about. Uh, so from then on, there was no holding it back. Wasn't yeah, there? once that step had been made, um, the, in theory, there was no holding back. Um, but uh, with our human fallibility, it took many centuries for us really to recapture mm. something of the spirit of, of that. I think our time is up. Um, and I'm sure you would want, we've been very fortunate once again in this series of, of five lectures this year, and I'm sure we've been especially favoured tonight for having the benefit.
uh, of Brian Stanley's scholarship and learning which he's brought to us. I think we've learned a great deal and also learned a great deal uh, of issues which face us today as well and which we must continue to wrestle with as Christian people. I want to express uh, the thanks to the Christian Institute to Brian Stanley for making the journey from Bristol tonight. It was very worthwhile as far as we're concerned. And thank you very much indeed for coming.